1: Hello, and welcome to New Books in Popular Music, a channel of the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Smith Larman, and on this episode, I'll be talking with Cherie Homer, author of Catch That Rockabilly Fever Personal Stories of Life on the Road and in the Studio, a 2010 release on McFarland and Company. Rockabilly is a musical genre which began with the advent of rock and roll in the mid 1950s. It's a hard driving, guitar centered music with gospel, rhythm and blues, and country roots. Its earliest progenitors include Elvis Presley, Carl Perkins, and Wanda Jackson. And though it has ebbed and flowed in its popularity, it has never gone away. Along the way, it has gained and lost some artistically impressive artists. The Stray Cats, the Cramps, the Paladins, and the Blasters, just to name a few. High Noon, Big Sandy and his Flywright boys, and Rosie Flores are contemporary artists who carry the rockabilly torch. Not to mention the dozens of rockabilly festivals like Viva Las Vegas, Rockabilly Weekend and the Rockin' 50s Festival in Green Bay, as well as numerous festivals around the world that feature new as well as original Rockabilly artists. Cherie Homer has kept a keen eye on the Rockabilly scene her entire life. Her mother introduced her to the music of Elvis Presley at a young age, and, as with so many others, things were never quite the same. For two years at the beginning of the century, she published a Rockabilly fanzine called Rockabilly Review, and in 2010 published the book that is the subject of this interview. Rockabilly Fever is a compilation of biographical vignettes of 46 movers and shakers in the rockabilly world. There are classic Sun Records rockers like Carl Mann and Ed Bruce, Louisiana hayride artists such as Elvis Presley and Bob Luman, Arkansas cats like Ronnie Hawkins and Bobby Lee Trammell, Texas rockers like Buddy Holly and the Crickets and Lou Williams, California artists like the Collins Kids and Ricky Nelson, pioneers such as Narvel Feltz and Laura Lee Perkins, revivalists such as Go Cat Go and Tex Rubinowitz, and contemporary rockers such as the Casey sisters and Sue Moreno. Data for Homer's stories come from a multitude of personal interviews with the artists themselves as well as thorough scouring of the rockabilly literature. Cherie lives in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is where I reached her for this interview. Well, hello Cherie and welcome to New Books in Popular Music.
0: Hi Matt, how are you doing today?
1: I'm well, thank you. Um, so if you could please start off with uh, telling us a little bit about your biography.
0: Well, I got into uh, music because of my mother. She is quite a bit older than I am. I'm 32, and I hope she doesn't mind me saying this, but she's 72. So she grew up in the 50s, and she loved rock and roll and Elvis Presley and all those kind of people. And uh, when I was growing up, she used to play that kind of music for me all the time. She had a large and still does a 45 RPM record collection. So I would hear Fats Domino and Lil Richard and Jerry Lee Lewis and Bill Haley and, of course, Elvis, a lot of Elvis and uh, all those kind of people. And so I grew up listening to those guys, and I didn't embrace that in school simply because um, I was picked on in school. And I didn't want to get picked on any further, so nobody really knew that I liked Elvis um, until I got older and figured out ah, who cares, you know, they're going to like me. Regardless if they do, they do, if they don't, they don't well, anyway, so by the time I got to college, um you know, everybody knew that I liked Elvis and if they heard an Elvis song, they'd say they'd think of me and whatever, so um, I started liking all that stuff, um probably when I was about to high school in high school a junior, I do believe, um, really getting into it heavily because we had moved to Michigan for a couple weeks, and then when we came back, I helped reorganize my mom's 45 collection, record collection. And she was going through the songs, like um, stuff by Carl Perkins and Ricky Nelson and Dale Hawkins and Wanda Jackson, and then people I wasn't really familiar with, and we started listening to that stuff, and I really liked those people. And it just kind of developed. And then um, in 2002... I had bought a Sun Records compilation and Sonny Burgess was on there and Billy Lee Riley and Ray Smith and um, others, but I had basically bought it for the people I was familiar with like Elvis and Carl Perkins and Jerry Lee Lewis and I really got into the other people that I didn't know. Like Sonny Burgess, I first, when I first heard Red-Headed Woman, I was like, wow, where did this come from? I just played it over and over and over again and uh, so that got me interested in Rockabilly. And I started digging deeper, and then we went to the Ponderosa Stomp. When I say we, my mom and I went to the Ponderosa Stomp in New Orleans and saw Dale Hawkins and Joe Clay and um, Rocky Burnett and Paul Burleson and all these rockabillies, it's Scotty Moore and DJ Fontana and James Burton, guys that played for Elvis. And uh, then we went to the Green Bay Rockin' 50s Fest, and there were even more rockabilly's on that show. And I did interviews there because I had started a, a Rockabilly magazine at that time, or was about ready to start it. And so I did interviews with Buddy Holly's band, the Crickets and the Collins Kids and Billy Lee Riley and all these people. And I ended up putting out my own magazine, Rockabilly Review, and I did that for a couple of years. I had eight issues with that, and that was really fun and really cool that those people didn't even know me, but they were willing to give me an interview. The first interview I actually ever did was um, Dale Hawkins over the phone and then I did one in person with um, the crickets and I couldn't believe and my mom couldn't either. She had been listening, you know, as a child, I say a child, a teenager um, to Buddy Holly's records and then to be able to listen or see them in person was really a highlight for her. And Of course, I knew who Buddy Holly was. I'm a big fan of his and to be able to sit and talk to the crickets and, and get my questions answered and, you know, really feel like somebody, it was really a cool experience something I'll never forget so basically that's what what happened my transition into Rockabilly.
1: What made you uh, start up your uh, the Rockabilly review your your fanzine?
0: Um, Just because I had gone down to New Orleans and I saw these people in concert like Dale Hawkins and Joe Clay and the others that I mentioned and I thought how many people know who these guys are You know, and I knew they were up there in age, and I thought, they need to have their histories preserved. You know, this music is so wonderful, and, you know, their history must be really cool, because I know that they were from the 50s, and I love everything about the 50s. So I just thought that would be a a neat thing to do, and I had writing experience, because I graduated from the University of Wisconsin-Parkside here in Kenosha with a bachelor's degree in English, at a concentration in writing, so I had worked for their newspaper, college newspaper, and for their college, I internshipped interned, I should say, um, with the college uh, magazine there, and I had taken writing courses and whatnot, so I thought I was, you know, skilled in that area, so I thought, you know, hey, why not, you know, start up a magazine, so that's what I did.
1: And, and how did you come to write this book then? What was the impetus for that?
0: Um, well, it was my friend, Ken Burke, who wrote the foreword, really his influence, and my mom and other people. Um, I had been doing all these interviews, you know, for the magazine. I had acquired, like, probably 100 interviews with different rockabilly's, and uh, I had a kind of a backlog. Like I said, the magazine only lasted for two years. I couldn't get advertising, and it was hard to get um, people on board to subscribe and whatnot, so that's why I ended up quitting working on it. It was just too expensive. Plus, I had breast cancer in 2004. So, all around that same time, I quit. It It was from 2002 to 2004 that I had the magazine. But um, So, I had acquired all these interviews, and everybody was saying, oh, you should write a book. You should write a book. And I thought, oh, I don't know. I've never done anything like that before. But thanks to my friend, he helped me um, propose a um, submission letter, you know, on a proposal, proposal and an outline and what have you. And I sent that around to like 50 different publishers. And there were a few that were interested, but basically they told me, you know, I don't know what Rockabilly is. I don't know how to market it. I don't think it would sell any books. So we're not interested. But then finally, McFarland came to me actually three times, I do believe. And they said, hey, do you still have that book idea? We're interested. So they knew what Rockabilly is. My editor's a fan. and They gave me a pretty good deal um, in regard to you know being a writer for the first time and they were really really helpful anytime I had a question they'd come back to me right away with an answer and um, I was just really pleased and I'm very pleased with how it turned out and it's all over in different libraries Harvard and Yale and Princeton and Dartmouth and um, overseas the British Library and the Library of Congress here in Washington DC and um, of course, a lot of public libraries, L.A. Public Library, and just all over. So it's really cool to think that my book is in that many different places.
1: Well, that is really cool. Um, why don't you tell us uh, about the organization of the book? The book is uh, 46, uh, I guess, biographical, biographical vignettes. Um, and you've organized it. Uh, you have a section on Sun Records. You have some section on sections on, on regional rockabillies. How did you decide on the organization of the book?
0: You know, that's a good question. Um, I don't know. I, I just basically, what I tried to do is include as many people that I thought um, people would be interested in reading about, that they're really, a lot of them are, there's not much information out on. And um, all the people that are in the book are many of my favorites, actually, probably all of them. Otherwise, I wouldn't have included them. But um, uh I just basically thought, okay, well, you know, you got Sonny Burgess and you got Ray Smith. They both recorded for Sun Records. So if somebody recorded for Sun, then basically they'd go in the Sun section. And Elvis wasn't put in the Sun section just because um, the Sun section was pretty large on its own and the Louisiana Hayride section really wasn't. And I had so much information on the Hayride um, because I talked to the engineer, Bob Sullivan, and he gave me a lot of background on how they recorded the show and the setup and the whole deal and i wanted to put that in there so i thought well i need to have a section on the louisiana hayride so i ended up putting Elvis in that section and um with the texas rockabillies those guys were originally from texas um like buddy holly and sunny west and hewland ball and uh rockabilly revivalists um i think uh Who's in that section? Marty Brahman, I do believe. Um, she kind of start, restarted the Rockabilly movement. The Dave and D Combo, um, High Noon, people like that really kind of jump started the um, movement here in the States again back in the early 90s. So I thought, hey, that's a good section to put them under. And um, that's kind of the basic idea. I just, you know, I thought of their biographies and where they would most likely be placed.
1: Right. Um, now, I, I hope this isn't a redundant question, but how did you decide uh, which artists to cover? Because obviously there are some very famous people, say Carl Perkins or somebody who you don't put in the book, and some others that most of us have never heard of.
0: Well, um, that's, that's the problem in regard to um, logistics. I mean, there's so many rockabillies. There's thousands and thousands, probably even some that I'm not aware of. So, I mean, my publisher had to put a limit on how many people I was going to include. I mean, you can only have a book so big, you know. And I'm actually going to have a follow-up. Um, I'm working on a Ricky Nelson book right now. I know you're probably going to ask that later, but I'll throw this in now. I'm writing a Ricky Nelson book right now. And as soon as I get finished with that, it's going to be a follow-up to the Rockabilly um, to include people that weren't included in the first one, like Dale Hawkins and Carl Perkins and Conway Twitty and, you know, guys like that. So, um Basically, what happened was my publisher requires this of everybody that I interview or get a photo from they want to sign permission slip. Well, some of the people that I interviewed would not sign a permission slip, so therefore they weren't included um for whatever reason. I don't know why they didn't sign a slip if they didn't get it or they just didn't want to be included or whatever, or um it could be that uh this happened also um that I didn't have anyone to talk to that would give me any fresh insight. I didn't want to write the same thing over and over again. I know people have given me a critique in regard to, oh, well, why did you put Elvis in there? Why did you put Buddy Holly in there? There's so much written about those guys already. And the Elvis section is just kind of there. You know, it's not really saying too much. But I, I'm, I'm very pleased with the way it turned out. I mean, the Elvis section, I thought you know because I had interviewed Bob Sullivan and he had never been interviewed before as far as I know um there was some new things about Elvis that was put in there you know that I hadn't seen before and uh anyway you can't have a book on just straight ahead rockabilly and I'm not trying to downplay rockabilly at all cuz I love it it's the music that that's my favorite but you have to kind of put more mainstream artists in to sell a book And basically, you know, that's what I do for a living. So I have to sell books. Um, So I put Elvis in there and Ricky Nelson, and Buddy Holly, and people that would stand out to the regular person because, unfortunately, they don't know who the Collins kids are, Sonny Burgess, or they should, but they don't, you know. And um, I had to throw in some more popular stars. But that's why Carl Perkins and Johnny Cash and, you know, some of the bigger names aren't in there. Um, Hopefully, you know, like I said, some of those guys will get in the next one.
1: Right. Um, here's a more general question then. Uh, is the birth of rock and roll and rockabilly the same thing?
0: Um,
1: and how and when uh, do these jo- genres diverge or, or do they diverge?
0: Uh, that's a very good question. Um, It's hard to, it's a thin line between all these genres, between rockabilly, rhythm and blues, rock and roll you know they all kind of what i kind of think of is like um the tree of life with branches like uh the rock and roll is at the base and then you have all these branches that are branched off like you have rhythm and blues and you have western swing and you have uh traditional country and you have rockabilly and what have you you know uh all these different genres are um branded together. I don't know how to say it exactly, but, you know, they're combined together to form rock and roll. So rockabilly has elements of rock and roll, but, um, you know, you can tell a distinct difference. Rock and roll is more polished. Um, It has a more uh, kind of a poppy sound. Um, I'll give you an example. Like if you listen to Elvis's Sun records, I hate to keep going back to Elvis because you know, he's so popular, but it's just a good reference. But anyway, um, Elvis's Sun Records, if you listen to that stuff, it's um, very raw and primitive and uh, uh, very simplistic in the respect of how much instrumentation there is. I mean, that's basically all there was with Elvis on acoustic guitar, Scotty Moore on electric guitar, Bill Black on bass. Sometimes drums, but hardly ever did they have drums on there. Um, so basically that was your lineup, but then he went to RCA He started in 54 at sun by 56, he was at RCA and he had, um, a piano and he had the Jordanaires and he had, um, drums with DJ Fontana and he had, you know, a more, you know, elaborate sound, more, um, uh, smoothed out and more, uh, um, pop, I guess what I was saying before, like his Heartbreak Hotel. If you listen to his first song, That's Right, Mama, in comparison to that um, Heartbreak Hotel by the time he gets to RCA, his first single on RCA, there's a dra- uh, drastic difference. Um, you know, you can tell really that they've, you know, upped the engineering and upped the sound. And I love Sun Records. It's, you know, I love that primitive, raw Emotional feeling that they get on those records that echo you can't you can't beat those records, but um you know what by the time you got to r c a they were more interested in uh watching the clock you know at sun Record you never had to watch the clock, they didn't care when you got done recording at r c a it was like a three hour session you had to get out of there, and so they wanted you know as much product as they could get in that three hour time slot and um it was more professional and more um, more people involved, too, even regarding the production and the distribution and the whole shebang because it, at Sun, it was such a small, independent label. They could only do so much. So I don't know how to answer your question.
1: It it does, in a way. I'm thinking of, uh, I think it's Johnny Powers in your book, and he says, we weren't calling it rockabilly. We were just calling it rock and roll. So I'm I'm kind of wondering as well, you know, at what point did people start self-identifying themselves as rockabilly?
0: Um but see, rockabilly really wasn't a term used in the 50s, so that's why you don't hear people from the 50s referring to themselves as rockabillies. Plus, it was a derogatory term back then. Country Stars would be on, like, Hank Snow or... Um, Hank Snow is a good example. We'll give him as an example. Um, he would be on the bill with, say, Elvis Presley or um some of the other guys and Elvis would get more fan reaction than say Hank Snow they would be yelling out Elvis Elvis you know while he's doing trying to do his show so him and some of the other bigger names in country started calling them rockabillys and rockabillys mm-hmm. them was a derogatory term like rock and hillbillies you know and they mm-hmm. didn't want to be referred to as hillbillies cuz it was you know like oh you guys are a bunch of stupid dumb country folk you know and so um they didn't want to be termed as rockabillies. They they preferred to call themselves rock and roll. And like I said, back in the day, rockabilly wasn't really a term that was used. It was used in some song titles and Billboard used it a couple of times. But basically, people didn't really know what rockabilly was, so they just called it rock and roll. It wasn't until like the late 70s, early 80s when um, Europe, they had never given up on rockabilly. They loved it all the way through. They started calling up Sonny Burgess and Billy Lee Riley and Glenn Glenn and all these guys finding these people and calling them up and saying, hey, you know, the scene is big over here. We want you to come over here and tour. But then they came over there, and then that's when the term rockabilly really got to be popular, and everybody then was known as a rockabilly.
1: Right. Uh, and I, I know you don't want to keep going back to this, but I don't think it can be, um, this point can be overstated, and if you can address it in, uh, what role do Elvis Presley and, and Sun Records play in the emergence of Rockabilly?
0: Oh, if there was no Elvis Presley and Sun Records, I don't think there would be Rockabilly. And I'm not saying that there weren't people doing Rockabilly before Elvis, because there was. Glenn Glenn was doing it. Lou Williams was doing it. But um, Elvis broke down the door to Rockabilly. Um mm-hmm. I mean they they put Memphis on the maps on record Sam Phillips, Elvis Presley. I mean you can't have rockabilly without you know those three principal players. I just can't imagine it. I mean if anybody ever asked me what is rockabilly, I always tell them go listen to Elvis's Baby Let's Play House. That that to me is the true definition of what rockabilly is. The bass, the thumping bass, stand-up bass, um Scotty electric guitar um and Elvis's hiccupy vocals. Um that's just the epitome of rockabilly to me. Um and Sun Records with their echo, their echo tape tape delay echo that they had on their records. Um so there's there's no way in my mind that there could be rockabilly without um Elvis going in the Sun Record Sun studio on July fifth, nineteen fifty four and uh you know, recording that's all right, mama. That really set the whole thing off. Jump started rockabilly, so to speak.
1: Rockabilly and rock and roll as we've already been discussing, right? Yes, yes. Yes. Okay, I th- I thought at this point maybe uh we can get specific a little bit more specific into your book. And as I said, it's a it's a compilation of I I counted 46 different artists. And mm-hmm. and maybe I can get you to talk about some of them specifically. And there's no real order here other than ones I found interesting. Um, so maybe if you could tell us a little bit about, uh, it's from your section, Chapter 5 on California rockabillies, uh, artists I really knew nothing about, the, the Collins kids. Can you give us a, a little bit of story about them, please?
0: Um, well, the Collins kids were a brother-sister act, and they started off when they were pretty young. I think um, Lori was like 14 and Larry was 12, something like that. And, uh, um they came out to California. They were originally from Oklahoma, and they appeared weekly on Town Hall Party. And so they befriended guitar greats like Jill Maphis and Merle Travis and um, the whole cast, and they became a, a regular feature. So they got to feature their songs on their um, their Rockabilly songs. And Columbia Records was their record label. And unfortunately, Columbia had Mitch Miller as their A&R man. And uh, Mitch Miller was very much into sing-alongs and um, folk and polkas and what have you. And he didn't have a clue what to do with a cutesy, young um, rockabilly act like the Collins kids. So they were pretty much um, sidelined to um, do novelty songs and stuff they really didn't want to do in the beginning at least. And then they kind of rebelled and said, hey, we want to do our own stuff, you know. So then they started writing their own material and doing really hot numbers like Hoy Hoy and Hop, Skip and Jump and Mercy and "Whistle um, Whistlebait and, you know, all these really great rockin' songs. And um, it's unfortunate that they didn't get the... They I don't know if they really got any airplay. I know that they were on, like, Steve Allen and Ed Sullivan and places like that. But they didn't have any charted singles, unfortunately. And that's probably because of the promotion from Columbia. And... Uh, What ended up happening is they disbanded um, in the early 60s because um, Lori Collins was in love with Ricky Nelson and vice versa. And they were supposed to be married. They were engaged. But um, she ran off with Johnny Cash's manager, Stu Carnell, uh, without telling Ricky. And uh, that broke up her relationship with Ricky and also the act. So um, she went off and did her own thing for a while. And then they got back together finally and... Larry actually wrote um, a couple famous songs, Delta Dawn, and, uh, oh, what's the other one? Um, oh, I I know this, something about Oklahoma. Well, um, it doesn't matter. I'll, I'll think of it in a minute. But um, so then they, they got um, Resurgence when the, the Rockabilly revival came around in the early 90s. And they've been playing ever since. I've seen them like five times, and they're still great today. Um, he still plays his double neck guitar and, uh, it's just a really cool act to be able to see.
1: And he plays it well.
0: Yes. Yes.
1: You know, I I get
0: a kick out of when I see those old town hall party videos and see him on there, how he can spin around and jump around and do all that stuff and (laughs) never miss a trick. It's really something to see. And he gets a kick out of that too. He, he wonders where he got all the energy from.
1: Um, you also include Ricky Nelson in your California rockabillies. Uh, what what role does Hollywood play in especially the, the California rockabilly scene, but also generally?
0: Okay, just a second. I thought of that song that I was going to say that Larry okay. Collins had written. It's You're the Reason God Made Oklahoma. He actually co-wrote it with uh, Sandy Pinker. I had to uh, look it up. Sorry about that.
1: That's but, okay. um okay. Uh,
0: so he got to be pretty well known as a songwriter. But anyway, so what was your question about Ricky? I apologize.
1: Well, the question is generally about the, the California rockabilly scene. What role do, does Hollywood and, and movies and TV have in the California rockabilly scene?
0: Um, I don't know in regard to like movies, but uh, definitely TV because of Ricky Nelson. I mean, Ricky Nelson um, and the adventures of Ozzie and Harriet helped to... Um, put rock and roll rockabilly what have you on uh on the map in Hollywood because um he he was on their weekly and they had so many viewers i mean people would tune in just to see him sing and uh you know it, they would have the episode and then at the end they would have one or two of his latest hits um or upcoming releases that he would have on record so uh I'm walking actually was the first song that he ever sang on the Adventures of Isaac and Harry April 4th, 1957. And uh, that drew in so many viewers. I do believe he sold like a million copies in a short amount of time. And so then, like I said, after that, they just tuned in weekly. What song is Ricky going to sing this week? And then they'd run out and buy the song. So that definitely helped him get his songs on the charts and get them, you know, audiences when he'd go play live and you know, thousands and thousands of fan letters. I do believe he got like 10,000 a week. Um, so, you know, TV definitely helped him in that respect and helped Rockabilly Rock and Roll. Um, then teenagers were like, oh, wow, what's this, you know, this new music. We got to go, you know, check this out. And so definitely that helped. And when Elvis was on stage show, which was a Tommy and Dorsey brothers, um, Tommy and Jimmy Dorsey brothers uh, show, um, his appearances on there helped rock and roll and there were some movies that were put out um but i don't really know if they're considered rockabilly more so than they are rock and roll because like chuck berry was in on them um, and whatnot like rock 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 and mr rock and roll and jamboree and what have you and those are wonderful movies and those definitely helped you know, rock and roll, because people would go to the um, movie theaters and see those movies. The Girl Can't Help It was really popular. They had a lot of stars in that one, Fats Domino, and Eddie Cochran, and Gene Vinson. Um, there were some more rockabilly movies, but I don't think those really became popular until the resurgence, like in the 80s and 90s, um, like Rock Baby Rocket with Johnny Carroll, and Carnival Rock with Bob Luman, and um, more of those cult classics. And they're they're great movies for the music, but they're lousy for the plot. So I usually fast forward <laughs> through and just when I watch the musical segments, but I'm very glad they made those movies because where else can you see Bob Lumen? you know? And he gave some really wild performances in that in that movie, Carnival Rock.
1: Um, how about uh, telling us a little bit about the importance of the Louisiana hayride for Rockabilly, as opposed to, say, the Grand Ole Aubrey?
0: Well, the Grand Ole Opry and the Louisiana Hayride were rivals, and uh, usually what ended up happening was um, people would start on the Hayride or vice versa, and the other one would steal them, Um, like that happened with Hank Williams. Anyway, the Louisiana Hayride was definitely more um, akin to accepting rockabilly performers, whereas the Grand Ole Opry was strictly a country. They wanted um, George Jones and uh, Jim Reeves and, and, you know, people like that, and Hank Williams. Um, I'm not saying the Louisiana Day Hayride didn't have country acts. It certainly did. It had Farron Young and it had Hank Williams and it had Jim Reeves. But it was more known for bringing in rockabillies and accepting rockabillies. Um, Carl Perkins appeared on there, Wanda Jackson. Elvis was a regular. Bob Luman was a regular. James Burton got a start on uh, Louisiana Hayride. So... Um, definitely had a big impact on Rockabilly and bringing in the teenagers. Um, You know, once the young people left the hayride, the teenagers didn't attend anymore. And it's kind of funny, before they came in, it was basically an older crowd, Um, but then Elvis showed up, and then the older crowd left, and all the teenagers showed up. So um, they brought in the younger crowd and the um, record-buying public at the time, the teenagers who would go out to the jukeboxes and the record stores and buy their records and go to the shows and whatnot. So um, the Louisiana Hayride was very cool in that respect, that they accepted Rockabilly and um, played Rockabilly and recorded Rockabilly. I I mean, they didn't record actually there, but KWKH um, is the one that aired Louisiana Hayride. And KWKH wasn't too far from um, the Hayride. It was actually there in town in Shreveport. And it recorded some of the greatest rockabilly songs ever recorded, "Suzy Q" by Dale Hawkins, and um, a couple of recordings by Bob Lumen, and um, you know different things by different people. Um, And they had a a local radio show that they aired every morning. Max Brothers and Rose came on their Sunday mornings right after the hayride Saturday night. So they did a lot. You know, the the city of Shreveport um, helped definitely to contribute to the whole rockabilly movement with the Louisiana Hayride and T.W. Cage.
1: Uh, One of the artists you have in your Louisiana Hayride section is Wanda Jackson. Can you tell us a bit about her, please?
0: Well, Wanda Jackson back in the day um, was really chastised and criticized for being as wild as she was or what they thought wild was. I mean, the 1950s overall was pretty conservative, the Eisenhower era. um, You know, you weren't supposed to wear fringe dresses and shake like she did and uh, wear high heels and makeup and jewelry and and look as flashy as she did and sing those songs like Mean, Mean Man and Yuji Mama and, you know, all these um, risque songs and the respect that, you know, they didn't see women doing that. They saw men doing that. And, you know, for a woman to get up there and and do that, she really broke a lot of boundaries. And she actually had gone on the Grand Opera her only appearance. I think maybe she's been on there since, but... Back in the day, it was her only appearance, and she was backstage waiting, and she had her pretty fringe dress on that her mother had just made, and it was kind of low-necked. It was a sweetheart neckline, and um, she was really feeling confident, and Ernest Tubb comes back, and he says, "Uh, Wanda Jackson? And she says, yes, that's me. He says, well, you're on next. She says, oh, wonderful. I'm ready. He says, well, you can't go out there like that. And she says, well, what do you mean? She she you know i'm I'm ready to go, and he said, "No, no, you can't. you gotta put something over that. You can't go out there with a bare shoulder. she had you know a sleeveless dress on, and uh so she had a fringed beat up kind of jacket, and she threw it on, and she went out there and she sang her song. She got off the stage and she was crying, and she said to her dad, she says, "I'm never coming here back here again. Let's get out of here." you know She was so embarrassed that you know they wouldn't allow her to appear on the opera like that she helped pioneer um, you know, the rockabilly women's movement, so to speak, cause, uh she was one of the first ones to do what she was doing and have that growl in her voice and that um raw edge, you know, that most of the guys were doing and uh for her to get out there and say, Hey, women can do it too, you know, that was pretty cool. And she just got inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I do believe last year or the year before, which was really cool and Certainly deserves, she deserved to be in there a long time ago, so very, very good right. for her.
1: So uh, we can segue a little bit. Can you tell us a little bit more, if there is more to say, about uh, the role of women in Rockabilly throughout well, history? There,
0: well, there weren't that many women to begin with. Like I said, there was Wanda Jackson, and there was Lori Collins and the Collins Kids, and Jazz Martin. Jazz Martin got a lot of um, criticism, too, because she used to sing on stage barefoot. And she was actually dubbed the female Elvis. In fact, I think a lot of people are called that, but um, I think she was the first one to get called that. And uh, there were others, too. Um, Jerry Lee Lewis's sister, uh, Linda Gale, she did some rockabilly, and Barbara Pittman. And there were a handful. Laura Lee Perkins, she's in my book. There were a handful, but um, basically, like I said, in the 50s, uh, women were considered to be... um, more submissive and should stay at home and raise the children and, and be a housewife more so than getting out on stage and shaking and rocking and singing those wild songs and traveling on the road and whatnot. So, um, and it's a hard life too, you know, going from city to city and not making much pay and having to, you know, clean up and dress up maybe in a bathroom stall and don't know where you're going to sleep that night or if you're going to get paid. and You know, it, it's rough. So, um, for those women to be troubadours like they were, you know, it took a lot of guts and, and you know really showcased, um, you know, that they had enough wherewithal to be out on the scene like that. And it, like I said, it, it influenced a lot of people after that. I have Kim Lanz and Martif Brahm in the book, and they were influenced by Wanda and Janice. And um, there's many, many more females now on the scene, probably more today than ever. Um, I was a friend of mine was going to write a book actually on the women of rockabilly. And, uh, I had given him a list of all the rockabilly females that I could think of. And I couldn't believe how many there were. There's probably like at least a hundred that I know of. So it, it's really cool to see, you know, women getting out there and, and singing and performing and, um, showcasing their talents too. Cause there are a lot of talented female rockabillies out there.
1: Sure. Um, now, maybe we can go back to the, the Sun Legends section uh, now. Um, in doing a little bit of research, mainly you know looking up artists online and listening to their music, one one that I found interesting was Carl Mann. Can you speak about him a little bit, please?
0: Um, well, Carl Mann is from Jackson, Tennessee, and uh, he started out, I do believe he was like 17 years old, and he recorded there at Sun. He was one of the last artists, or oh, I actually think the last artist to record at Sun. Um, before they transferred over to uh, Phillips International, um, that label. It was still in Memphis, but it was a different label. And uh, he did Mona Lisa, and Mona Lisa was um, a big hit for Nat King Cole back in the 40s. And Carl rocked it up. He put a more rockabilly feel to it and uh, got to be pretty big. I do believe it was number 20 on the charts. And uh, he got a lot of fame from that touring around the country and... Um, performing for different audiences like he uh actually did the summer dance party which was a knockoff on the winter dance party that killed buddy holly richie valens and uh the big bopper so he got to play the same venue there in clear lake and he saw their signatures on the wall and whatnot he took the same um tour you know like the same city that they hit And, uh, actually a little side note in regard to Mona Lisa, um, Carl actually recorded it, but it wasn't released. Sam Phillips sat on it. So while he was sitting on it, um, Conway Twitty got word that he had recorded it and it hadn't been released. So Conway released it. And, um, I think it actually became a bigger hit for Conway than Carl. And then Sam was like, "Uh Oh, I think we better get this out. So then he finally released it. But, um, I don't know if it would have been released otherwise if it hadn't been for Conway Twitty recording it and releasing it and having, you know, a bigger hit with it, but Carl's a great guy, and uh, he just started up touring again recently for a long time, like 20, 30 years. He wasn't doing anything, and um, he got back into it recently, and I'll actually be seeing him in September. He's playing the Rock and E Jamboree in Green Bay. I've seen him before, and he sounds, today as good as he did back in the 50s, so It's really cool to see him and, you know, these other people still playing.
1: A lot of these original artists, they kind of stopped around, you know, in the early 60s or so and and did all sorts of odd side jobs. And and they've only been coming back in the last 15 or 20 years, right?
0: Yes. Well, see, what happened is um, after 58, Rockabilly died here. Um, I mean, you'd have a hit here. I mean, a song here um, every now and then that might be Rockabilly, but basically, you know, was forgotten about. The Beatles came over in the British Invasion and Bob Dylan and what have you. <clears throat> so in 58, that was probably the last time that it was charted on the Billboard charts. And uh, then teen idols came in like Frankie Avalon and Fabian and, you know, those kind of um, singers. So it, it made for a change, and a transition in the music scene And it wasn't really until the Stray Cats um, came back, or came, I should say, um, to America in like 1982, and they had a top 10 single with Rock This Town that really put Rockabilly back on the map and um, said, hey, you know, we're still here, you know, don't forget about us. And then... uh, Like I said, they started getting a lot of calls over here, the originals, saying, hey, come over to Europe and play our festivals. And Hemsby was like one of the first festivals, which was in England, still is. I think they're like on their 45th one or something. They have two times a year a festival. And um, they were going over there. And now today they go to Spain and France and Italy. And you wouldn't believe all the festivals they have in Europe. In fact, fans complain there's too many to choose from. But um, Europe really kept it going, like I said, all along. And they were bringing 50s acts even over before that, like in the 60s and 70s. Um, Not so much rockabilly people, but rock and roll like Chuck Berry and Lil Richard and Bill Haley and, you know, guys like that. Um, They just really embraced the music over there and have kept it going. And um, over here, and especially over there, they have... uh, Record hops where they they play all, all rockabilly or rock and roll, and they have these um, uh, festivals. Like I said, and people dress up in fifties style. You know, they have the fifties ducktail hairdos and um, the fifties clothing and um, all the merchandise that you could think of. You know, whether it's CDs or records or vintage clothing or whatever, um, and they sell all that over there at the festivals. And it's it's really something to see all that. It's really cool.
1: It seems also uh, that Canada has embraced rockabilly. Is that right?
0: Um, I'm not too familiar with what's going on in Canada. I mean, I know some of the rockabillies have toured there. Like Art Adams is pretty successful there. And I've heard some of the other people, but um, I don't know. I'm, I'm not too familiar. I know Ronnie Hawkins lives there. He's retired now, but he had a pretty good thing going on there for a while. And some of the other guys... Um, did get popularity in Canada after it kind of died down here in the States, like Ray Smith and Conway Twitty, and of course, Ronnie Hawkins. So um, yeah, in the early sixties, I would definitely say they embraced it and they might even be so today, but um, I don't hear that much about what's going on in Canada. It's mostly over in Europe and Australia, even Japan. um, Rockabilly is pretty popular over there. They have festivals over there.
1: I suppose my Canada question was, a, was was meant to be a transition into a discussion of Ronnie Hawkins. Can you talk about Ronnie Hawkins a bit?
0: Um, well, from what I hear, Ronnie was quite a performer back in the day, and uh, I didn't get as much information as I would have liked to. Um, I thought I had more, but then I went back and listened to the tape, and I was like, oh And his health hasn't been too good in recent years. He had a bout with cancer, um, pancreatic cancer, in fact, and I guess he's okay now, but like I said, he's no longer performing. and. He was quite a wildcat back in the day, and um, he uh, actually had Bob Dylan's band, the band, as his original lineup of the Hawks. And um, they went on to go with Bob Dylan, of course, and have fame of their own. But like Robbie Robertson and LeVon Helm were original members with Ronnie Hawkins down in Arkansas. And they used to play all the nightclubs down there, like Silver Moon and Porky's and um, the Hot Spots. in Newport, Arkansas, and that, I do believe it's Highway 67, all the clubs along there, so um they they were, he was pretty, pretty cool, I, I uh, have stories about him, but I don't think I'll share them, because they're um, kind of, kind of embarrassing, but uh, he was, he was quite a entertainer, I mean, he used to jump around, and do splits, and crawl on top of stuff, and Kind of like Ray Smith, you know, I talk about him in the book and he was another, seemed to be a wild one, you know, hanging from the rafters and doing whatever, you know, just to get the audience entranced, so. Um,
1: there are there are a couple places in your book, one or two places where there is this connection made between, uh, someone says that rockabilly was the, the punk rock of its day or some such thing, um, you know maybe really we were talking earlier about distinction between rock and roll and rockabilly if there is one was rockabilly maybe a little bit more the wild side of rock and roll maybe
0: oh yeah definitely like i was saying earlier it's raw and it's primitive and um there's a lot of hollering and there's a lot of um you know emotion put into the lyrics and not to say that rock and roll isn't because you know little richard certainly was that way but um I mean, I can give a good example. Like, I I compare the rock and roll trio, Johnny Burnett, Dorsey Burnett, and Paul Burleson to punk music. I would say they're the grandfathers of punk. Um, If you listen to them, uh, they're way out there. I mean, in comparison to, like, say, uh, other people of the day of the 50s, like, you know, um, Pat Boone or Perry Como, I mean, you're like, whoa, where'd they come from? You know, so, you know, I could see where... People like that back in the 50s wouldn't get airplay. I mean, they wouldn't know what to do. You know, like, whoa, you know, sounds like it's from Mars, you know. Or even, um, he's not in the book, but uh, Billy Lee Riley, he's another one um, that was pretty wild. And out there, you know, when, when they were listening to those records, you know, I know they were popular down south, but when you would get up into the northern regions, if the records were even played up there, you know, they must have thought, wow, where is this coming from, you know? So um, I could definitely see where Rockabilly had its influence on punk music. hmm.
1: Um, uh, what about some of the more recent Rockabillies then? Um, in the Rockabilly revivalist section, say someone like High Noon, what, what about them? Tell us a little bit, please.
0: Well, High Noon... Um, has had a lot of success on their own, but they also played with Ronnie Dawson, and they got a chance to play a couple times in the Conan O'Brien show, which was really cool, and uh, Carnegie Hall they played. Um, So they've gotten, you know, some success in that respect. Um, They were one of the bands that started off in the Washington D.C. area, and there was a real resurgence of rockabilly in that particular area with Go Cat Go and High Noon and Tex Rabinowitz and Billy Hancock and um, Danny Gatton you know it was a, a circulated some spots in America have you know a lot of rockabillies like um, LA and um, Austin Texas and Washington DC you know there's certain spots they just happen for whatever reason to have a lot of rockabillies or even Memphis back in the 50s so um, you know they were playing the circuit with all those people go cat go and you know whatnot and they still get together every once in a while and play and um of course they have their own solo careers now and um but they did they did pretty well for themselves as a band when they first started um and like i said they were one of the first ones to really get things going again over here and getting um uh, you know shows put together where it was all rockabilly and festivals here in the states and and whatnot
1: and and another interesting one from the revivalist section is Tex Robinowitz he seems like he was a, might have been a little bit older than a lot of the other revivalists. Is that right?
0: Yeah, yeah, and he is. And uh, it was really difficult for me to get an interview out of him because he's real reclusive nowadays. He's upset with um, what happened with him in regard to the, the music industry. And, he, you know, and this is... Uh, point well taken he thought that he should have been a bigger star than he was and he wasn't and uh it kind of has bittered him um so he's real reclusive and for me to get an interview i i was really proud of me myself for that and um he really gave me an extensive interview and he's he's a pretty nice guy and um he did some cool songs you know back in the 80s and um whatnot. so i don't know what else i could say about him except you know he was part of that uh um, wait
1: you say he was upset about what happened to him in the industry. Do you, is, can you go into more detail about that?
0: Um, just that he didn't have any hits, and that you know he wasn't really too much embraced outside the Washington D.C. area, and you know that sort of thing. So he thought he would be, you know, more popular than he was. Right. Um, not to interrupt, but can I talk about two different artists? Cause I told my friends that I would. So
1: please, too. This is a, this is a great ta- time for you. Here, here's a question. Okay. Uh, sheree can you why don't you pick a few artists off out of your book that i haven't mentioned to talk about please
0: okay um <laughs> well one of them is glenn glenn and uh he had a song um called laurianne which was more kind of a poppy song but you know he did rockabilly certainly too and uh laurianne was actually number one in la and in hawaii and it was featured on american bandstand and uh they wanted him to come on american bandstand and perform it but uh he was stationed in the army at the time and the army wouldn't allow him to get discharged temporarily to go there. So he couldn't promote his record and therefore it didn't get any chart success nationwide, which is really a shame. But he had some really cool records back in the day and he got to play with Max Brothers and Rose and he has some of their nudie suits still in his collection, the famous nudie suits with the rhinestones and the sequins and embroidery. And um he did Everybody's Moving, and he had uh, uh, Eddie Cochran's bass player his own bass player, and he did a lot of the um, uh, shows, you know, out in California. There were other things besides Town Hall Party, and he did, you know, some of those other local shows there, and his cousin is Porter Wagner, so he got to tour with him and um, got to get to know a lot of the country stars and whatnot. And then there was another artist that I wanted to speak about, um, Larry Cole, he's actually the last artist in the book and he lives out in las vegas and um he does rockabilly um and he actually um tries to combine a little bit of uh country rock into his music too he does a lot of his own stuff but he plays the jackson rockabilly festival every year and uh he'll do songs like um that are Elvis's or carl perkins or you know conway twitty and uh, he was inducted into the Rockabilly Hall of Fame in 2006. He was actually the youngest member. And when he started his career in 92, he got to open for Carl Perkins, which was a big highlight for him, and got to become friends with him. And Carl was kind of a mentor. And uh, Ronnie McDonald, um he uh, um, uh, opened for him on a couple shows and got to do um fanfare in nashville with him a couple times so um he's just a really great artist and uh hope that he gets more popularity that he has in recent years he's just basically played here in the states out like in las vegas or in jackson tennessee and memphis area but i hope that you know other festivals latch on and and uh check out his act
1: and he simply goes by cole is that right
0: yeah now it is yeah but his real name is larry cole so that's why i right. said that But um. Yeah, he goes by Cole nowadays.
1: Right. Uh, are, are there any other artists that I I've missed in the book that you you want to tell us about? I mean, why well, I, I like... could
0: I could stay here all day and talk about every one of them, <laughs> but um, I, I'll uh, stop at that because I know your hour's about up. So.
1: Well. What outlets are there for rockabilly bands these days, whether recorded or live?
0: What do, What do you mean in respect to people coming out and seeing them, or
1: both? I are. Are there record labels that that focus on rockability these days? Do they? I know there's these. That's for recorded, but also live. Mm-hmm. Um, there's these festivals you've mentioned, right?
0: Right, right. Um, well, there's the Viva Las Vegas Weekender. They do that every year out in Vegas. They've done it um, 14 years. It'll be the 15th, I do believe, next year. And that's really successful. They have um, a lot of bands on there, and thousands of people come out. They just had Jerry Lee Lewis, and I do believe the Crowd attendance was like 15,000 or something ridiculous. Um, so they're really successful with that. And um, they've had festivals up in Green Bay called the Rockin' 50s Fest. They had three of those in 2002, 2005, and 2007. And last year and this year, they've had um, a Rockin' E Jamboree, which is kind of cool. They have you know Elvis tribute artists. And this year, they're having more rockabillies, like Carl Mann and Sonny Burgess, and the Crickets are all playing it. And they have a thing that goes on in Seattle, Washington, um, Shake the Shack Ball, it's called. Um, And they used to have one in Indianapolis. I don't know if they're still doing it. I think they are, but I think it's kind of um, scaled down simply because of the economy. But that was the Rockabilly Rebel Weekender. And, of course, they have things going on all the time in L.A., you know, and there's clubs that you can play, and Chicago has a pretty good scene, and, of course, of course down in Texas and, and Austin they do a lot of stuff down there and um sometimes things happen in Arkansas, like um the Newport, Jonesboro area, Memphis and Nashville sometimes have things going on. So there's several places to play and of course over in Europe, um, there's you know, so many festivals to play in clubs and New York there's places there to play and um So I think Rockabilly is definitely making a comeback. I mean, I'll get fashion magazines and there'll be sometimes references to Rockabilly clothing, like the style was Rockabilly, or there was even an article about Wanda Jackson's recent album in there, giving it high praise in Elle magazine.
1: Mm.
0: Um, So you see a little article here and there. And the Million Dollar Quartet, which is a uh, musical based on – the Sun Session that included Carl Perkins, Johnny Cash, Jerry Lewis, and Elvis Presley, that one occasion in December 1956, um, they're going around. They have a production in Chicago. They have one in New York. It was on Broadway for a year. It's actually going off-Broadway next month. But then they're going to start a tour, a nationwide tour here in the States, and also it's going on in London. So that's really cool for Rockabilly and um, just little things here and there that you know come up and So there is quite a bit going on. I wouldn't say it's um, lucrative in regard to money. I mean, there's really not that much going on for... um, The legends get paid really well, but unfortunately, the newer artists don't. The majority don't get paid that great. So um, it's because they don't have the status and, you know, promoters are cheap and and whatnot. So... um, you know, and I can understand where the promoters are coming from, but I also feel sympathy for the artists. I think everyone should get paid decent, you know. So um, there are a lot of places to play. But as re- in regard to um, recording, a lot of the artists have their own record label and their own studio, um, so they do their own thing, like Kim Lenz and Dickerson and um, Larry Cole has his uh, own record label. Um, so basically, you know, they do their own thing and put it out and you know hope for the best but um because record labels don't want to really take a, a chance on rockabilly very few out there um I can't even think any of any big ones off the top of my head that have any rockabilly artists they're just um they don't know how to market it it's the same with me in regard to finding a publisher they just don't know what rockabilly is and they don't know how to market it so it's really unfortunate that there's no big time label out there that would take a chance on Rockabilly like they did in the 80s with the Stray Cats. Because I would love to see Rockabilly on MTV and VH1 and in the charts, you know, <laughs> but I don't know if that'll ever happen again.
1: Well, um, what are you up to these you, you these days, Cherie? You, you mentioned you're writing a book about uh, Buddy Holly. Is that right?
0: No, Ricky Nelson.
1: Oh, Ricky Nelson. I'm sorry.
0: No, that's okay. Um, yeah, I'm currently working on that as to the publisher in September. So next year sometime it'll be coming out. And I'm really excited about that project because I wanted to write a book about Ricky a long time ago. He's my second favorite artist. Elvis is my favorite. But um, I got to interview a lot of really great people, ones that worked on the show and a lot of his musicians and producers and whatnot. So I think it's really going to be a a cool book. It's going to be called um, Rick Nelson, Musical Memories of a Hollywood Heartthrob. Mm -hmm. So I'm looking forward to that. And like I said, I'm going to be doing a follow-up to the Rockabilly book. And, of course, I try to um, go to as many shows and festivals as possible. Like I said, I'm going to a festival in September, um, the Rock and E. Jamboree, where they have some Rockabilly artists. And I just try to get out there and support the Rockabilly movement, music, scene, whatever, as much as possible, whether it's buying CDs or um, going to the shows or whatever I can do, you know, I want to help, help the scene.
1: You write articles as well?
0: Yeah, I've written for Blue Suede News and um, some of the other publications, Keep Rocking, which isn't in, um, it, does, it doesn't exist anymore, but um, I did a couple for them and um, so I, I, you know, I try to get out there in regard to that too writing articles and keeping people informed of what I'm up to and what the artists are up to.
1: Right. Well, it's a, it's a, it's a great book, Sheree. It's a, you, we talked off mic. It's in a number of collegiate libraries. It's a great reference book, I think, for anybody who, I mean, I learned a lot about many artists that I hadn't heard of. Um, So I want to, you know, thank you for writing the book and uh, thank you for, for giving me an interview.
0: Thank you. And um, I don't know, did we mention the title? I don't even know if we did.
1: Oh, We we can we have, and we can, again, it's Catch That Rockabilly Fever, personal stories of life on the road and in the studio.
0: Okay, and should I tell people where they can get it or no?
1: Um, I, uh, please do.
0: Okay. Um, <laughs> Amazon has it, Barnes & Noble, you can order it from. For people listening overseas, you can go to your local bookstore and ask them to order it for you. And I know if you do a Google search, a lot of websites come up where you can order it. eBay has it sometimes, and um, Tower Records online, and um, Overstock.com. And there's a bunch of them, so people won't have any trouble finding it. Just type in Catch That Rockabilly Fever by Cherie Homer, and you should be able to find it without any problem. And I, I hope that people enjoy the interview, and hopefully, I answered some questions relatively well about Rockabilly and the artists, and that they'll be intrigued enough to go pick up a copy.
1: Okay, well, uh, thank you for being on our show, Sheree. Thank you. You've been listening to an interview with Cherie Homer, author of Catch That Rockabilly Fever, personal stories of life on the road and in the studio, a 2010 release on McFarlane & Company. Please check the New Books and Popular Music site regularly for more interviews with authors of books about popular music. I'm your host, Matt Smith-Larman. Thanks for listening.